take your word and uh, look at Matthew chapter 18. We're going to start with the first verse this week and move through verse 9 of Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, Jesus has just finished explaining again to his disciples that he was going to be killed and he was going to be raised again on the third day. And it says at the end of chapter 17 that they were greatly distressed at this. Okay, They didn't really understand it, but they were greatly distressed, the text says, Matthew says. Um, but apparently they weren't really very distressed for very long because they, they start to head south to Capernaum and on the way there, they get into this argument. Um, right? Luke's gospel tells us that they're having this discussion out of earshot of Jesus, and they're arguing about who is the greatest. So it just kind of got me thinking. How many of you guys have been on a road trip this summer? Vacation, you've driven. You know, How many of you guys have just been on one in general? Probably all of us. You can remember, especially talking to you parents. Uh, were there ever any arguments on your road trips? Any, any bickering in the back seat? Um, you know, lines that can't be crossed that you're trying to enforce from the driver's seat. Um, that happens, right? And so I just, this isn't quite the same situation as that because, you know, the, dis- the disciples kept this quiet from Jesus. The kids in the back seat of the van, they're not keeping that quiet from the parents. It probably wouldn't be such a big deal if they did. Um, but it wouldn't really matter if Jesus heard them or not, right? The sovereign over all creation knew what was going on in their conversation, in their thinking, in their hearts. And so when they get there, he asked them about it, right? And you just you can just picture this. I don't know if Jesus was sarcastic or not, but I kind of tend to read this with a little bit of sarcasm because he's kind of like, so what were you guys talking about on the way here? Like, like you didn't know, you know, what were you guys talking about on the way here? Um, well, Luke's gospel tells us that they were embarrassed about it. And so they didn't really want to say anything. So they kept quiet. I mean, even loudmouth Peter kept his mouth shut at this point. He was embarrassed, but of course Jesus gets to the truth. And so the disciples reveal the subject of their argument and it's, well, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
That's, that's their question. So they're asking Jesus this question. And, and, you know, we could think through this. You know, was it, was it Peter who might have been the greatest? I mean, think of all the things that have gone on with Peter. I mean, he walked on water. Uh, he was told that he's the rock that the church is going to be built on. He was given the keys to the kingdom. He was taken up the mountain to see Jesus transfigured in the last chapter, chapter 17. Maybe it was Peter who was the greatest. Maybe it was James or John. You know, they kind of seem to have this special relationship with Jesus too. He called, he asked them to go up on the mountain with Peter in the last chapter. Uh, I mean, if you really think about it, it, maybe it was Judas, right? I mean, they trusted this guy enough to keep the money bag. He was in charge of the finances. Maybe he was the greatest in the kingdom. And so they were having this conversation, and Jesus gets to the heart of it. Um, how many of you guys have ever played the game King of the Hill? You guys know what I'm talking about, the game? Um, I remember I was at a camp years ago, and I was a college student. I was, you know, I was supposed to be one of the leaders. Um, probably didn't do a very good job, but uh, we were at this camp, and they had built this floating like dock, I don't know, it was about three by three, and it was anchored in the middle of the pond. And all week, it was just one big long game of King of the Hill. And there was one person on top, and everybody else was trying to shake them off or grab their legs. I can't imagine how many injuries there were from all of this. Um, but grab their leg and get them off and get up there yourself. Because that's the point of King of the Hill. I'm going to tear other people down, take them down to try to be the one that's on the top. And really, I mean, this is kind of what the disciples were doing here. They were trying to be the most important. They wanted to, Jesus to say, it's you. So they may have been deeply grieved at what Jesus was saying at the end of chapter 17. You know, he, he, Jesus was saying, I'm going to be delivered to the hands of sinful men. I'm going to suffer and die and be raised again. You know, but because of their self-centered hearts, their thoughts turned away from Jesus to themselves and each other's relative worth. It changed very quickly, and it's unfortunate, and yet so often the disciples' behavior is a mirror to ours, isn't it? How often do we are we grieved by something that we read or see or hear from God, and then so quickly we start letting selfishness creep in and overtake what God is trying to to, sh- to show us, to teach us. The disciples are fighting about who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven, but at least in Jesus' mind, there's some question about whether they're even going to be part of the kingdom at all. I mean, it seems hard to think that. Uh, Jesus might be calling the disciples' hearts into question here because, after all, you know, he, they'd already proclaimed, you know, Peter being the spokesman, they'd already proclaimed that he was the, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. They were demonstrating their trust in Jesus. They were going everywhere he was going. Each of them had already gone out on mission at this point for Jesus. They'd healed. They'd uh, healed the sick. They'd cast out demons. How could their salvation possibly be questioned here? Well, I, I think the answer is simple, and that is salvation is not just about doing. Salvation is about being. Salvation is about being. Being a child of the king isn't about what you do. It's about what's been done for you in Christ. Now, I'm not suggesting that good works don't show, aren't an evidence of salvation, but to be saved, it's not about what you do. It's been what's been done for you. It's about being in a reconciled relationship with the one true God through Jesus Christ, his son. And if we think that we have a hand 
in our salvation at all, guys, we tend to get puffed up. And when we do that, we start to diminish and to minimize the work of Christ on the cross. That's what our nature will begin to do. And even in in verse 3 here of chapter 18, the verb form where it's talking about turning, you know, you, you, unless you turn and become like children, this is like a passive verb form. It's something that is done from the outside to them, not that they do actively. So it's really the same for every believer today, right? An outside force, the Holy Spirit, comes and convicts a person of their sinfulness and their need for the Savior. Then the Spirit prompts the human heart to turn from that sin to the Savior because no one is going to enter the kingdom of heaven without being converted first. And so in, I think in the King James, this says be converted. Instead of turn, it says be converted and become like little children. This is the context of what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus' statement to them wasn't just designed to challenge their pride, although obviously it did, but it was designed to put their minds back on the more important things. I mean, this is what he rebuked Peter for a few chapters ago, if you remember. He said, your mind is not in the right place. Get behind me, Satan. It's a big deal. So at that point, Jesus calls. He says, okay, guys, come here. He gets them all together and he gets this child. He calls a child over. Um, Now, Peter lived in Capernaum. And there's some thought, maybe this was one of his nieces, nephews, family. So maybe Jesus had some kind of a relationship with this child already, but he calls to the child and the child comes. And he sets it down, sets him down in the middle and he starts to teach. He says, uh, to the disciples, he's saying, guys, this is how you are not only a part of the kingdom of God, but you're a part of God's family. You have to become like this. Now, of course, if, if that happened to us, we would be thinking, what on earth are you talking about? Right? Uh, I think it was Nicodemus was confused when Jesus was talking about, or someone was talking about being born again. How does that work? I have to go back in the womb? No. No, you don't actually have to become a child in, in your thinking so much as the trust, and we're going to talk about that. But I'm amazed at how Jesus handles the disciples here. After everything he said and taught and done, I mean, if I was, of course, I'm not the risen Christ, but if I was Jesus at this point, I'd have been frustrated, thinking, guys, why aren't you getting it? And yet, even knowing the selfishness in their heart, even knowing the discrimination in their heart, Jesus deals with them gently, calls a little kid over. He says, guys, this is what it means to be a child of the king. Now, I want to show you guys a picture. So when you see this picture, you don't have to answer out loud, but just think through, what do you notice? What do you see in this picture? Okay. Most of us are going to see, you know, the age of the children. We're going to see the gender. We're going to see the race. Uh, we might notice the clothing, the attire that they have, that sort of a thing. Um, Think through the eyes of, a, of one of these kids for a second. What do you think they notice when they're playing like that? I bet they don't notice if, you know, that other baby has like the cool in baby haircut. Um, 
or if they have the newest shoes that all the other babies are crawling around in, um, which shoes at this age concern me anyway. I don't really understand it. Like the kid's not walking. Why do we need to put them in shoes? I don't really get that. Um, but anyway, uh, so I don't think they notice, you know, the haircut or even, you know, the, the clothes. I don't think that they even notice this, the color of the other kid's skin. There's videos on the Internet that kind of go through this sort of thing. Um, and I don't think they notice any of those things. I don't think they even really would care if they did notice those things. So I'm not, I'm not really launching into a, you know, racial reconciliation message today, although the gospel speaks to that. And if we apply it in our lives, it destroys every bit of prejudice. Um, but what I want us to understand better today is why God chose a child. And the, the word that's used here is probably a toddler um, in, around this age that Jesus brought and put down in the, in the midst of the disciples. Why did Jesus use a child? He was using this child as a point to the disciples and all of those around that this is what it means to be a child of the king to be a Christian. Okay? Adults, uh, if you're honest with yourself, you are a skilled wall maker. Okay? Let me explain for a second. Um, I can prove that this is true, that we're wall makers. Uh, how many of you guys... Actually, don't answer this. Just think through. How many of you guys had a fight or a disagreement on your way to church this morning? Right? If you hadn't this morning, it's happened in your life, I'm sure. You get in a fight with your spouse or a kid on the way to church, and you're grumbling. You say, get your shoes on and get in the door. And then as soon as you walk through the door, hi. And so, and somebody says, hey, how have you been? Oh, I'm great. Right? Building walls right there. Um, you had a difficult day before you go to a friend's house for dinner? Same thing. As soon as you get there, boom. You know, you know they're going to ask you how you are. So you got the answer locked and loaded. I'm good. Right? And you're fast with it. I'm doing fine. Right? We're building, we're building walls. Walls separate us. And kids just don't seem to do that. Right? Because if, if I'm, I think in, you know, just, 15 years or so, I've probably only ridden to church with my wife and kids a handful of times. Um, but if, if that was our family and we came in here and we just had this argument and Nikki and I are like, oh, hey, we're doing good and we're building the walls like adults generally do. But you asked one of our kids, hey, how was your you know ride to church this morning? Uh, Mom and dad would probably be embarrassed about their answers, right? Because kids, uh, they don't understand how to, how to build those walls. They don't understand how to put on the mask as well as us adults do. And because they're so um, less developed in their wall-making abilities, kids are genuine. Right? You, you ask them a question, and, and they're probably going to give you a straight answer, whether you really expect it or not. I mean, Bill Cosby made a whole show out of this, right? Okay? It's funny stuff. Um, but kids are authentic. And I think this is part of why Jesus grabbed a kid and put the kid in the middle with the disciples. Because kids are authentic. And brothers and sisters, we need to be authentic. We need to be real about the walls that we build and also about the results, the, the results that they bring. We need to be real about our pride 
and the walls that those create. Now, praise God, our walls can come down with repentance. And Jesus is speaking to us, I believe, here when he says, unless you turn, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' response goes straight to the center of the disciples' pride and really questions whether they're even going to enter the kingdom of heaven at all. He's saying, guys, unless you are turned from your current attitude, from your current way of thinking, from your current perspective, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That has to happen for that to be the result. And though he uses a little child to illustrate this point, what he's saying is poignant. Did I say that word right? It is powerful. It is important for us. And here it is. Blank will keep you from heaven. Sorry, I just had to throw that in. Here it is. Pride will keep you from heaven. Isn't that what... Part of what Jesus is teaching here, pride will keep you from heaven. It will keep me from heaven. And here's the truth. If you're not humbled before the Lord in this life, you will be humbled by God for all of eternity in hell. Jesus said, turn, be converted, and become like little children. To be a citizen of the kingdom, you have to become a child of the king. If there's a kingdom and there's a king, you have to become a child of the king. And this is really at the essence of what it means to just be a Christian, a child of the king. Here's another reason I think Jesus um, uses a little child to teach the disciples this lesson. Kids are completely dependent on their mom and dad. They, they're not, those toddlers, they're not going earning a wage during the day. You know, they're not making money. They're not, some of the, some of them are still having their diapers changed. Uh, they have to be fed. Um, we have a, a three and a half, four month old. And were it not for my wife, um, he would have been gone a long time ago. She sustains him in every single way. Kids are dependent completely on their parents. So Jesus is saying that if you want to be part of the kingdom of heaven, You not only have to turn from yourself, but you have to trust in the Father. Turn from yourself and trust in the Father. What does it mean when a kid runs up to you with their arms up in the air? They want you to pick them up, right? They want to be seen. They want to be heard. They want to be noticed. They want to be loved and comforted. Guys, isn't this how we humble ourselves before the Lord? And that's why oftentimes you'll see people, uh, even in this church, raising their hands in worship. That's the same idea. Asking God to, to wrap his arms around us. It's nothing super spiritual or, or unusual. This is what kids do to be wrapped up in their father's arms. This is what Christians do to be wrapped up in their father's arms. We come to him the same way, just like a child recognizing our complete dependence on our father. Now, Jesus shifts the conversation, I think, in verse 5 here a little bit. And it's worth noting, he's just equated everyone who follows him with little children or children of the king. Right? We've, got, we've figured that out. We've got that. And he actually uses a, a child, a real-life child, to illustrate a spiritual reality. Now, when you see child or little one in the rest of the text, 
we need to remember that Jesus isn't just talking about little kids, toddler age, you know, three and under, or whatever that might mean. He's talking about spiritual children of the Father. So this in this chapter now, child refers to Christians. Okay? So when Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, he's not, he's not equating himself with little kids primarily. He's equating himself with Christians. Little children, Christians. Uh, John uses the same kind of terminology in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Little children, he's saying the same kind of thing. So Jesus is saying, when you receive a Christian, you are receiving me. When you receive one of these little ones, when you receive a Christian, you're receiving me. So this brings us to the part of Matthew chapter 18 that, just to be honest with you all, I hadn't noticed much before. It deals with how God's children are to be cared for. The rest of this chapter deals with how God's children are to be cared for. And Jesus, again, for the second time now, later on, in a couple of weeks, will use the word church again. And it's in the context of what we're talking about here and throughout the rest of chapter 18. He's speaking about the church and how we should interact with one another. Okay? So, lest you think that what I'm sharing does not apply to you today... This applies to every one of you, if you're a Christian. This chapter is more than just little kids and millstones and cutting off appendages. This chapter, this section, is about how Christians are supposed to care for one another. It's a foundational truth that if you have been saved, you have been saved into the body of Christ. You are a part of God's people. You were saved into a special group of God's chosen people. This shouldn't be a proud, <clears throat> haughty group of people because we should be the first ones to admit that we have had so very little to do with our salvation in the first place. By God's grace, we exercise the faith that he gave us to trust in him. We are saved for his glory. We should be the first ones to say that sort of a thing. But the truth is that you can't be a Christian and avoid the church. Now that's maybe an unusual thing to hear in our culture today, but you can't be a Christian and avoid the church on purpose. You can't say you're following Jesus if you refuse to reconcile with your brother in the church. You can't say you love Jesus, but also put a low priority on worship, getting together with your brothers and sisters in worship. Read Ephesians chapter 5, 22 through 23. Everything that that says about Christ and the church, and you read that and try to tell me that the church isn't a big deal to God, that it's not a big deal to Jesus. It says he gave himself up for her. If that's the case, then every, every Christian should be a part of a church body. Big C, the church, and little c, a church body. You can't be a Christian and avoid the church. If you're a part of the church, and specifically I'll talk with Ramsey Creek members at this point, if you're a part of this church, you will be committed to one another. Not only that, Jesus here, as we go, is teaching that you're going to be committed to one another's holiness. Right? Because that's what he starts saying. If you 
cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Remember, little ones as Christians. If you cause a Christian to sin, it'd be better than the millstone and the sea analogy. You will be committed to each other's holiness. I mean, I'm committed to you, not just for five more years or ten more years. I'm committed to you for eternity. And you're committed to me for eternity. And that means something because God is our father and you are my brother or sister and I don't want to cause you to sin. I don't want to tempt you in any way. Now obviously, and Jesus mentions this, there's going to be temptations in the world to sin. But I certainly don't want to add to those temptations to you, my brother, and you, my sister. Your holiness is something that I should be committed to. So practically speaking, Can we get practical for a minute? Practically speaking, if you have a relationship with me and you know that I struggle with with gossip, well, you probably shouldn't come running to me with the juiciest, you know, neighborhood nugget of what's going on. I mean, you shouldn't be doing that anyway, to be honest. Um, But man, don't don't come to me with that. And just thinking about other ways that we might most of the time unintentionally cause a brother or sister to sin, Gossip is one. Materialism. Sexual temptation. Busyness. Complacency in our walk with the Lord. You know, we can knowingly, but oftentimes unknowingly, tempt a fellow Christian in those areas. And Jesus is saying here, like, this is a big deal. He says you should go throw yourself to the bottom of the ocean and be drowned rather than do that. So if Jesus places a high priority on this thing, then we should too, and we should be committed to one another's holiness. Now, I am not suggesting, just for clarification, I'm not suggesting that we run and embrace legalism. I I, I can't do that, and you can't do that either. That's not what I'm saying. This is a call for real Christian love. And Paul, in Romans 13, I believe, he talks about this. He says, if you really love your brother, you will suspend or give up your freedom in Christ for their benefit. Right. So all that means is, I love my brother or my sister more than I love that thing that I really might have the freedom to do in Christ, but might hurt their relationship with me and them or them and God. So I'm going to give that up because I love my brother or sister more. That's what that means. And so having your holiness in my mind is going to cause me to think differently about you and you about me as we walk through this journey of life together. Guys, this concept flies right in the face of the American mindset, doesn't it? Because our culture tells us right now, if it feels good, if it brings you pleasure, do it. And if, you know, one of those fundamentalist Christians tells you not to, well, they're just a bigot and they're a joy stealer and you should just not listen to them. That's what we're hearing. And so this teaching where Jesus is saying, you know, be concerned about your brother or sister's holiness, this flies right in the face of that. But it ought not to be that way in the church. Because the church is different, isn't it? We are the called out ones. And sometimes we're called to limit our freedom for the sake of a brother or sister. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, I think that we should gladly do it 
because of our commitment to them. That might not be a, a, for, for the rest of my life kind of a thing. It may be just for a season. But we're called to do it. Now, we're not, the second part of this is we're not only committed to the holiness of our brothers and sisters, but we need to be radically committed to our own holiness. Right? I, I use the word radically because Jesus uses a radical graphic illustration here when he's talking about this, doesn't he? he he's talking about cutting off a hand, gouging out an eye. Uh, those are not pleasant things to think about. And yet, this is what he says. And so he's, he's using this graphic illustration to make us realize that sometimes drastic action is necessary to avoid temptation. Drastic action is sometimes necessary. Jesus is not suggesting, I hope you understand this, Jesus is not suggesting you go home and start cutting off body parts that, you know, play a part in your sin. Um, that doesn't get to the heart of the, the sin anyway. So Jesus knows that wouldn't really make a difference. Um, he, what he's saying is that sometimes serious and drastic, almost violent action needs to be taken to eliminate temptations to sin. A friend of a friend of mine um, struggled with uh, pornography and it was able to access it on on their phone. And so I've heard the story related to me that... It, it happened more times than it should. And he was so frustrated that he smashed his phone on the ground. Broke it. That's a little drastic. Um, my wife was saved at the age of 18 and uh, was wrapped up in alcohol and parties and all kinds of things before Christ. And her world revolved around that sort of a thing. And so the people that she ran with, hung out with, her friends, were involved in that sort of a thing. And so she's, in her testimony, she shares that when she became a Christian, she had one friend. One friend. And when she went back to school after being saved, all those friends were inviting her to the same parties and asking her to do the same things. And she would have to say, no, I can't do that. Here's why. And they thought it was weird at first. And then at some point, they just thought she was being a goody two-shoes. And then at some point, you know, they just thought, well, she just doesn't like to have fun anymore. And then eventually, she had to say, we can't be friends anymore. And she found, she had to find new friends. Now, how many of us are willing to do that? to give up friendships, maybe long-term friendships that are leading us down wrong paths. I'm not saying it'd be easy, and I'm not saying that in, in God's sovereignty He may use you in a friend's life to share the gospel with them. But there's a definite point when I think we know this, this relationship is unhealthy, and we need to get out of it. And we shouldn't apologize for pursuing holiness. You shouldn't apologize for pursuing holiness. If something is leading you to sin, kill it. And I, this is, I'm speaking in my heart today too, brothers and sisters. If something is leading you to sin, kill it. We so often, we keep that stuff around, we flirt with it, we, we tuck it away until we feel like we can do it again. 
and then we fall into temptation. Man, we can't do that any longer. Jesus is saying, you've got to have a radical view of this sort of thing. Sin is a big deal. Our culture laughs at it. TV shows are based off of it. But Christians are not that way. Sin is a big deal. And so in the, the 1600s, this concept of killing sin is not new. In the 1600s, a Puritan named John Owen wrote a book, The Mortification of Sin, To Kill Sin. And he said in that book, he said, Do you kill sin? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Man, that struck me this week. Kill sin or sin will kill you. That, isn't that how we need to look at this though? There's, I've got a few copies of an article in the back called, with this title, Kill Sin or Sin Will Kill You. And I found it really helpful to think through this process. And it's a lady who wrote it, and she kind of shares her perspective. And I think she's a fiction writer, so it's very engaging, but it's really helpful. But John Owen says, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Wow. Guys, when we're zealous about holiness in our own lives, we're going to care, and we're going to want to protect one another as well. And we're, when we're protecting one another, when we're committed to one another's holiness, that's also going to cause us to be all the more careful about sin in our own life. Won't it? But if we're on the flip side, if I'm casual, if we're casual about our sin, kind of nonchalant about it, well, I know I shouldn't have gossiped about that person, but you know, everybody does it. And if that's our attitude, guess what? That's going to permeate our church body. And we're going to be sick and unhealthy if we take sin flippantly. We have to be deliberate about protecting ourselves and one another in this way. Learning Jesus' teaching in this will help us really understand the rest of Matthew chapter 18. And that's the connection that I hadn't really seen before in this. It's all about the care of God's people, how we care for one another. We look out for one another in holiness. We look out for ourselves. Next week, Jason's going to talk to us about the, the shepherd leaving the 99 and going after the one. The week after that, we're going to get into the, the real heavy text about church discipline. right? And all of those things are about the body caring for one another. It all goes back to love. How do I love my brother? How do I love my sister? But if we fail to make the connection here, it's going to cause our church to slip right into the ways of the rest of the world where sin is tolerated first and then celebrated second. Guys, there are churches, you know, with signs that call themselves churches that celebrate the sin that God condemns. Ramsey Creek cannot become that way. By the grace of God, we will not. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. This leads us into caring for one another in the church in other ways, as I mentioned, in the weeks to come. We're going to talk about these things. Now, one more word, as I'm closing, one more word about the the argument that the disciples had about who was the greatest. You know, I was just thinking about this too. Being great in the eyes of the world uh, will get you nowhere. Right? Uh, you can store up for yourselves all kinds of things on this in this life, 
and yet forfeit your soul. Being great in the eyes of the world means nothing. It'll get you nowhere. And But in fact, you know, like the disciples, fantasizing about being great in the kingdom of God isn't going to get you anywhere either. No, you have to turn from yourself and become like children. From yourself to the Father if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, like it or not, Jesus says it's the only way in. There's not a side door. There's not a back door. There's no special circumstances under which you can be a part of God's family. It's through Jesus becoming like kids, great or small, in this life. Every single person has to come to the Father as a spiritual child, knowing little, bringing nothing, and needing only their Father. Our prayer at Ramsey Creek today is that everyone here would recognize their need for a Savior. Because when we do recognize our need, we can be confident that He hears us, He sees us, He loves us, and we cry out to Him, turning from ourselves, He receives us with joy. So today, my call is, be committed one to another. Be committed to your own holiness. And in doing so, turn from your sin. Be saved by Christ today. Let's pray. God, the only way to be a child of the King is to turn from ourselves and become like a child. <laughs> Lord, where we aren't prejudiced, our pride has not uh, taken control in our hearts, Lord, but instead we view one another through Christ-like eyes. And Lord, in that way, we will love one another so much that I might have to give up some things that I could do, but I won't do for the sake of the love of my brother or my sister. Lord, I pray as, as we go into these next few weeks of what it means to really care for the body, God, this is not a, these are not messages for those people out there. Lord, this is a message for each one of us to say, God, how, how do I need to change here? Lord, convict me of my sin, of my improper ways. Lord, and that you would draw us to your throne, picking us up when we need to be dusted off, Lord, but setting us right on the path of reconciliation with Christ and love for the brethren. And so, Lord, I pray that we would go with that in our hearts today. In your name, amen.